Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Ann Wolverton, Senior Economist at the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. Ann recently published a fascinating article on how economists can improve the way they account for environmental justice when carrying out analysis of rules and regulations. In today's conversation, I'll ask Anne to help us understand the role that economists play in evaluating rules at the EPA and what tools they're using to try and better account for environmental justice outcomes. We'll also talk about the important data gaps that make it challenging to do this work. Stay with us. Ann Wolverton from EPA, welcome to Resources Radio. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And I learned uh, just a moment ago that this is your first podcast. So welcome to the world of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and we're going to talk today about a really fascinating um, recent paper that you've published all about um, how EPA is incorporating environmental justice issues into its economic analyses. Um, so it's going to be a great conversation, but we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues, whether you sort of had a period of inspiration at a young age or whether you got interested in this stuff later in life. So what drew you into working on these topics? Yeah, um, I had to think about this. Um, I grew up in a really small town in Minnesota and I spent most of my summers outside. Um, My mom would kind of kick my brother and out and say, don't come back till lunch. And we lived um, on a bluff above the Mississippi River. So we spent a lot of time kind of wandering around in the woods. Um, And we also spent a lot of time up north at our cabin. So whether that's fishing or swimming or picking blueberries or whatever it was. And so I think my love of nature started from a really young age. And in addition, my dad had kind of a real skill for noticing things, details, you know, if you went on a walk in the woods and kind of make it very special experience, um, identifying tracks or specific trees or plants or just noticing the world around you. Um, and then when I was in high school, we moved to Arizona and that was a big change for me. Um, I was really aware of the difference in landscape, this wide open spaces instead of being closed in by trees made me feel like I forgot to put something on in the morning, (laughs) but it also was a change from a small town to a big city. And it, I think, made me aware of the fact that, um, you know, air quality and water quality are sometimes really at odd with um, economic growth. And it made it more explicit in a way that was maybe less evident in a small town setting. Um, so then how does economics come into all of that? Well, I took an economics class in high school and I did not love it. Um, but I went to Arizona State University and I had a professor who taught one of those really big 500 purse classes to undergraduates. And he had a real gift for showing how what I had previously thought of as a rather dry discipline could be applied to really interesting and difficult policy questions and provide a framework for thinking about trade-offs inherent in many of the choices that we make. So I think that's what kind of drew me drew me in those two kinds of pieces. Environmental economics allows me to think about nature and, and air and water quality and things that I really love. 
and economics makes it challenging and interesting and provides me with a systematic approach for trying to think through those things. That's so interesting how those two streams come together. So we're going to talk today about this recent article that's published in the Review of Environmental Economics and Policy. Um, it's called Environmental Justice Analysis for EPA Rulemakings, Opportunities, and Challenges. Before we start talking about the environmental justice or EJ aspects uh, of this um, question, can you give us a little bit of background on what is the role that EPA economists play when rules are being developed uh, within the agency? Yeah. So for each rulemaking that's promulgated by an agency, there's a kind of a rule development process, um, and it's informed along the way by analysis. And analysis in this context often means quantifying or trying to think through what are the main costs of imposing a particular requirement, typically on firms, uh, and then what are the what do we get out of it? What are the benefits of of that action um, in terms of avoided health effects, for example, or improvements in the ecosystem, um, something along those lines? We in addition to benefit cost analysis, we also often are asked to help think through the economic impacts of a given policy on specific groups of people or specific entities. So that might be small businesses, that might be thinking about effects on employment, that might be what whether we're imposing requirements on um, state or local governments. Um, what's happening with electricity prices and effects on consumers. It can be a wide range of things. And so we have this toolbox to try to quantify and, and when possible, monetize those effects. And really what we're trying to do in many cases is think about whether a given policy is going to be delivering more in terms of benefits than costs, and then also thinking through, are there trade-offs between some of the other goals of our policy and or unintended consequences that we haven't really carefully thought through that might imply, um, you know, a change in the regulatory design of the program itself. That's great background. And so within that context, um, to what extent has EPA in the past sought to incorporate environmental justice considerations into that sort of analytical process. And in addition to that, you know, looking back question, you know, the Biden administration has expanded this approach. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how it's been done in the past and how it's changed in recent years? Yeah, so I'm I'm going to mainly focus on the extent to which uh, EPA has evaluated environmental justice as part of the rulemaking process as opposed to sort of more broadly, because that's kind of my area is this analytic piece. Um, and I do want to note before we get too far in the discussion that while I can describe the analytic practices at the agency to incorporate environmental justice, I'm not formally representing the agency's policies and views during the discussion. So to answer your question, um, we in the federal government have had direction to evaluate environmental justice for a long time. There's an executive order that was um, signed in 1994, Executive Order 12898, and it directs federal agencies to evaluate whether policies, practices, programs are result in disproportionate impacts to specific populations that are defined on the basis of race, income, ethnicity. I can't go all the way back to 1994 to answer this question, but <laughs> we did an exercise 
at EPA where we looked at the inventory of rules going back to 2012 to look at the extent to which we were examining potential environmental justice concerns. And under the Obama administration, about two-thirds of the economically significant rules, those are the big ones that actually require benefit-cost analysis and other regulatory analyses included in EJ analysis. We also released a technical guidance document in 2016, so at the very end of the Obama administration, and that sets out broad expectations and recommendations for how you conduct environmental justice analysis. The reason I mention that is because we have analysts sprinkled all across the agency who are involved in doing, uh, you know, support for rulemakings and familiarity with the expectations that were set out in that guidance really ensured that environmental justice analysis continued to be conducted. So if you look at the Trump administration, for example, we still see that about two thirds of the really big rules were including an environmental justice analysis, despite a pretty big change in policy priorities at the time. Now, when we think about the Biden administration, there's been a real emphasis on the importance of environmental justice that, um, at least in my experience, is somewhat unprecedented. Um, and it's been in a, in a variety of ways. So one piece I haven't mentioned is there's a component of environmental justice called meaningful engagement, this idea that you allow affected communities to have a voice in decision making. And there's been a really proactive attempt to figure out how to operationalize that, both in terms of feedback that might inform the analysis, but also um, more broadly. And then in addition, we're trying to push the methods for analysis past just a characterization of pre-existing concerns or what's sometimes referred to as the baseline to think about exposure and risk and really who's being affected and how. There's a new executive order 14096 that was signed back in April of 2023 that expands the notion of environmental justice to a wider variety of population characteristics um, so in addition to race, ethnicity, and income, it includes disability, for example. And it continues to call on agencies to assess the potential for disproportionate impacts, but it calls out the importance of thinking about climate change and the role of multiple stressors. It asks federal agencies to think about systemic barriers and historical inequities. So it's really expanding the notion of what we might potentially take on in an environmental justice analysis. So we're trying to actively think through how to incorporate those aspects. It's definitely a work in progress. I will note that the technical guidance that I mentioned a few minutes ago is out for public comment right now uh, because we've decided to revise it to reflect some of the recent advances in the state of the science, as well as the availability of new data and, and methods. That's great. And um, super interesting background and context there. Let's get up to the, the present day. And you mentioned, you know, you're, you're in the process of, of incorporating these issues into your analysis of rulemaking. Can you just kind of put some more meat on those bones? What are some of the issues that you're wrestling with? Um, what are some of the kind of important decisions you need to make? And, you know, maybe if there's an example or two that comes to mind to help illustrate this, that would be really helpful for us too. But um, yeah, I'd just love for you to talk a little bit about um, how you're, you know, seeking to, to make these changes. Yeah. So a lot of the previous environmental justice analyses, not all of them, certainly, but quite a few of them 
we're only able to characterize what's happening historically and or currently. Uh, and the way, a common way of doing that is to think about locating the sources of emissions. So it might be a collection of plants, for example, and then draw a buffer around those sources to say something about the people that live nearby. The reason we do that is because often we don't have a good notion of what's actually being emitted and then who's being exposed to what's being emitted. So in lieu of that information, we're doing this drawing of buffers and saying, hey, this is what people who live within one mile or three miles of a plant um, look like. And this is similar to or different from people who live further away from that particular environmental hazard. Do they look similar? Do they look different? Do we have people who are poorer and have a particular demographic profile in terms of race and ethnicity living near the plant when people, you know, further than three miles away look really, really different. Now what we're trying to do is ask whether we can do better. And in part, it's to have a more refined understanding of where does pollution that comes out of a plant's smokestack, for example, go and who's actually being exposed to it? But also, how is a given regulatory option going to change that picture? Um, in order to be able to say something about how a regulatory option will actually affect change, we need to have better data and a better sense of not just who's being affected, but how they're being affected. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And it, it might surprise people. I, 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 well, I wonder if it would surprise people to know that um, that information is not sort of always readily available uh, for you and your, and your colleagues when you're doing these types of analysis. Um, you know, there are, of course, academic papers that have models that seek to estimate things, and EPA has its own models that you rely upon. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that sort of information gap and, and how it's getting filled in. Yeah, so one example where it's a relatively data-rich environment is when we think about policies to reduce particulate matter, for example. We have air quality monitors that tell us some information about where uh, particulate matter is higher or lower. We can potentially leverage satellite data to fill in those gaps. Um, and we have really sophisticated models that can estimate concentrations of particulate matter based on um, where they travel um, and wind direction and, and other factors like that. And so that means that we can characterize what things might look like absent a change in policy. And then we can also simulate how that might change uh, based on, um, you know, a reduction in uh, particulate matter. That's not always the case for a lot of other pollutants, either because we don't have the underlying data to inform those, or we don't have sophisticated models to kind of understand, um, even if we know what's being emitted, where it's going. Um, sometimes we can piece those together. So one example I give in my article is for lead dust um, we have a lead dust hazard standard and then a set of practices to clear to a particular level. 
And there we were able to use information on how much lead is showing up in blood lead levels for children. Mm -hmm. That's reported to um, in biomonitoring data that the U.S. government collects. We know something about where people live um, based on the American Housing Survey and how old that housing is, so the likelihood that it contains lead. And so we could combine the demographics and the housing information with the biomonitoring information and then look at who likely has elevated lead levels and then how that's going to potentially change as you clean up the lead dust from contamination. And there we, you know, we're, we're I think being kind of innovative in terms of taking disparate pieces and putting them together to try to evaluate a context there. But there are lots of cases where we don't have a survey that the federal government produces or we're not collecting information on emissions. And so we're kind of left with the proximity analysis with the drawing buffers around sources that I mentioned before. Yeah, that's great. That That's really interesting. And it, it's so fascinating to you know, hear about um, data limitations and analytical tool limitations from within the government perspective. I think sometimes people might have a, you know, inaccurate view that, you know, the federal government knows everything and they've got all the data uh, and, you know, big brother or big sister is like crafting these rules when in reality, um, at least for these particular topics, there are you know, pretty substantial limitations that can, can make this work challenging. One of the things that you talk about in your article um, that I think is really interesting and really important is the difference between thinking about marginal impacts uh, from a rulemaking and cumulative impacts that communities might experience. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two things, marginal and cumulative impacts, and, and why thinking hard about cumulative impacts is, is a little bit of a change uh, for economists when doing these types of analyses? Uh, sure. Let me back up a little bit and talk about the way we conduct a benefit cost analysis for a rule, because I think that's where this notion of a marginal or incremental effect kind of comes from. So the goal of a benefit cost analysis is to evaluate how the costs of taking that action and the resulting benefits um, change overall or aggregate welfare. That's an incremental question. How does it change? And then that's also the typical focus of a distributional analysis. How is that those costs and benefits distributed across the population? So again, costs and benefits being the incremental or kind of new piece. Um, it's not that that question isn't relevant when thinking about environmental justice, but I think we're taking a much wider lens in trying to characterize what's already happening and these communities and then how cumulative effects or multiple stressors might be playing um, a contributing role to those underlying disparities. And that's a really important piece of the puzzle. So it's a recognition that some communities face a combination of stressors that could be multiple sources of pollution, but it could also be psychosocial stressors, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to good nutrition, stress related to living in a neighborhood with more crime. Not all communities are starting from the same point, and ultimately that combination of stressors could mean not only that they're exposed to more pollution, but also that they have a greater response to a given level of uh, pollution because of 
this kind of mix of things that are already happening in their lives. So focusing on cumulative effects means kind of um, thinking about that broader context and thinking a bit more holistically. Uh, a piece that we're still trying to figure out is also how to think about cumulative effects outside of the analysis of an individual regulation or policy, which is really what we've been talking about so far, and thinking holistically about a combination of policies and programs that might reduce the disparities. Because the reality is sometimes that when you think about multiple sources of pollution or stressors, and you have in front of you a specific regulation, that regulation might only deal with a specific piece of that problem and yeah. doesn't, you know, doesn't address all the other other pieces. And so you need to think about it in combination with um, other potential actions. Yeah, that makes lots of sense. And, and it's very reflective of, I think, what the sort of EJ advocacy community has been has been arguing for, uh, for, for quite some time. Uh, so it's interesting to see it getting, you know, applied and, and really implemented in, in this context. Another thing that your article notes is that even if uh, an economic analysis of a given rulemaking might find that that particular rule yields positive net benefits to society, that is the overall goods outweigh the overall bads, that there still could be kind of concentrated damages for certain uh, groups or communities that, that need a lot of attention. So I'm wondering if you can give us an example of a scenario like that and, and help us think through what EPA might do in that situation. And like, um, to, to just be a little more colloquial, like, for example, if a, if a certain regulation yielded positive net benefits for society, but large concentrated damages for one group or another group, could that be enough for EPA to sort of scrap the rule entirely? That sort of goes to the question of, like, how does the benefit cost analysis ultimately inform the decision of whether or not to to finalize a rule in, in a certain form? Um, so could you just talk about that a little bit? I know I've asked a lot. It's, that, that's a big question, but I'd love for you to address it um, as best you can. Yeah. So the policy question, actually, I can't really answer, but I can speak to the role that analysis can play um, for a decision maker. Um, I think of the role of analysis um, both the benefit cost, we've traditionally done a benefit cost analysis and that really elevates the economics in the decision makers discussion of how to balance statutory requirements, feasibility, institutional concerns, political um, issues, whatever they are um, within that conversation. When we conduct uh, environmental justice analysis, that allows us to make more explicit the trade-offs between aggregate welfare and the distributional implications of a specific approach. And so now we can ask the question of whether there are some regulatory options that might deliver greater benefits to specific communities, perhaps at the cost of some what would have otherwise been a higher aggregate welfare, but is still delivering benefits to everyone, but just sort of targeting these communities more effectively. Um, how those trade-offs get made is kind of within the policy mix and the discretion of the administrator and other decision makers. But I think the role of the analyst is to provide them with enough information that they can have that discussion and potentially make those trade-offs more evident. In terms of an example, I guess one could think of something like a regulation where 
you need to set a national standard. You're setting some level of stringency. That might be a national ambient air quality standard for particulate matter or ozone, or it could be a regulation to um, reduce the amount of specific hazardous air pollutant. And really what you have as a policy lever within the statute is the ability to ratchet up or down that stringency. But it could be that you have particular communities where there are much higher concentrations of a pollutant. That's really difficult to target with a national level standard. And so you could continue to ratchet down the stringency, um, but that might impose large costs on everybody else. And so how do you how do you think about that? And I think that also means that you have to recognize that sometimes the specific regulation or policy lever you have in front of you might not actually be the right tool to reduce those disparities. You might need to combine that national level stringency with thinking about other programs or policies that will more directly target those more localized um, issues. You can also think about um, if there are constraints on the regulatory design uh, to think about what you might do with um, additional monitoring or information provision, or if there are requirements you can put in place for analysis or, or other types of tools that can be leveraged at key decision points. A lot of the federal regulations that we promulgate are then given to state and local jurisdictions to figure out how to implement. And so there might be um, ways to infuse the process down the road with um, kind of thinking explicitly about um, distributional or and or environmental justice concerns that way. That's great. So one last question, and before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is, you know, we've been talking about the role of economists in this conversation, but economists, of course, aren't the only ones that are involved in doing analysis and collecting data and, and helping to inform these decision-making processes. So can you just talk a little bit about how, you know, other scientists and other, you know, folks are working to develop data and tools to better these processes? Yeah, economists are definitely part of an, a broader team uh, that includes risk assessors, um, specialists in geographic information systems or mapping tools and, and other other types of scientists. Um, it's important to think about the role that these other specialists play because EJ or environmental justice analysis actually occurs relatively late in the analytic process. And if you want to generate inputs into the EJ analysis, you need to think about it at the earliest stages of the analytic process. And that often can mean thinking about it at when you're conducting a risk assessment. So, uh, a risk assessment would typically occur much earlier and might ask about whether there are potentially important exposure pathways to think about that might be unique to particular communities or particular groups. Um, an example, it's not really an environmental justice example per se, but lead, um, a typical unique exposure pathway is that children crawl around on the ground and put things in their mouths. And so if they're in a place where there's chipped paint, uh, on the windowsills or on the floor, they're going to naturally get that on their hands, put their hands in their mouth or chew on the windowsill, and they're going to get a lot more lead that way. Um, you also want to think about questions like, 
how do impacts vary across the distribution of affected individuals? And how might that vary with specific underlying conditions or population characteristics? For example, if you're thinking about air pollution, you might want to know whether certain populations have a higher incidence of asthma, because that could really complicate um, and elevate the response to um, particular types of pollution. I think that's super important and also points to um, some additional potential data and modeling gaps that we might want to worry about that aren't really necessarily just specific to economists, but might, you know, also mean that you need better biomonitoring data or um, epidemiological studies that um, focus more on groups that are typically underrepresented in scientific studies so that we can more fully delineate um, exposure and response across the full population. That makes a lot of sense. And um, and it's really interesting to hear um, just a thumbnail sketch of how all of that is getting updated and incorporated into the rulemaking process. So um, just really appreciate your expertise on these topics and helping us understand how they're being implemented and, and evolving over time. Uh, but we've come to the end of our time. So I'd love to ask you now, Anne, to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is great. Um, it doesn't really have to be related to the environment if you don't want it to be, but if it is related to the environment, all the better. Um, so Anne, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, I was trying to think of something that would be relevant to this audience. And a book that I read a few months ago um, is called Tom's River. It's by Dan Fagan. And I thought it was a really fascinating, hard to put down read. It's about a town in New Jersey that's basically had a host of rare cancers in the town. And they're trying to demonstrate the role that dumping many years before into the water had um, in terms of the cancers that now people are dying from in the town. And it really demonstrates all the different steps and also the difficulty of actually demonstrating that. This particular town ended up with a really large settlement, but, um, you know, it took many, 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 many years. And the other thing about the book that I think is really interesting is that it weaves the history of epidemiology into the story. So it gives you this broader lens of thinking about where they first made the connection between being exposed to a particular environmental hazard and how it shows up in the body. And of course, the most obvious place was with workers because they were, you know, working with toxic chemicals and dyes and other things and would end up with these really rare cancers. Um, and it just sort of walks through that, um, demonstrating how we ended up with this whole new science that, you know, basically tries to connect the dots between contamination and human health. So I, th I thought it was, it, it's, it was a hard to put down kind of investigative reporting um, type of uh, book that I really enjoyed. Very, very interesting. Great. Well, we will have a link to that uh, book and of course to your paper and in the show notes for the show so people can check them out. And uh, one more time, we just want to say thank you to you and Wolverton from EPA for coming onto the show and helping us um, get a better sense of how you and your colleagues are working to update the rulemaking process to incorporate environmental justice considerations. It's been really fascinating. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. 
Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.